10 verses of chapter 1 of Lamentations. God's word. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughters of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from the days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe, There was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despised her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction. For the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. The reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. There is truth in your word. And you tell us that all of Scripture is God-breathed useful for teaching and rebuking and training in righteousness. So Holy Spirit, make that what is accomplished here this morning and for the weeks to come. Watch over and guide my words. Mold and shape hearts and lives. It's in Jesus' strong name who lives forever that we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned, we are beginning a sermon series. It's a 10-week series in which uh, we're going to be combining the book of Lamentations and coupling that with Psalms of Lament. So, for example, today is on Lamentations. Next week, uh, I will be looking at a corresponding psalm, Psalm 10, and it's a psalm of lament. So we will be coupling uh, two different themes of Lamentations with a portion of Lamentations and then also a psalm of lament. Um, So this is where we're headed over the next few weeks, and I will tell you that I am excited and I am cautious. (laughs) I am excited to preach Lamentations and the Psalms of Lament because they're not preached very often. And most of the time, God's people just kind of give Lamentations and the Psalms of Lament a stiff arm and we want nothing to do with them. So therefore, I'm cautious because it's not preached very often. So why study the book of Lamentations? Why study the Psalms of Lament? 
So this morning, what I want to do, I want to provide us, it's going to be a little bit different kind of sermon this morning because of our unfamiliarity with the book of Lamentations. If I were to jump into Mark, I wouldn't have to give a lot of contextual background behind the book. Some, and I believe I did that, but here in Lamentations, we just simply don't know a lot about it as common, church-going folk. And so I think it's important that we do a relatively significant amount of background work and contextual work before we actually jump into the Scripture itself. So, so bear with me over the, over the next few minutes as we explore why is this book in the Bible? Why, does, why is it God's Word even, perhaps? And, and then, of course, what does it have to do with me? And why should I listen? So the first reason why we should study Lamentations is because Lamentations is real life. Unlike the movies that we watch that ultimately in the end have everything neat and tidied and it's wrapped with a nice pretty bow and everybody lives happily ever after, or the super thin Facebook veneer of the perfect Christian life is an undercurrent of Western consumerism, isn't it? This life I just described is an idyllic life. A life that's untouched by pain and sorrow and suffering. This kind of life that, that, is, that we project in social media or in our, our normal everyday lives, is, it's, it's, it's just that oftentimes, isn't it? It's, it's a veneer that we, that we try to keep untouched by tragedy or, or we don't acknowledge the hurt and the pain and the loss of everyday life. The Western consumeristic version of Christianity simply, and I'm going to be bold here, I think, is just not found in the Bible. or maybe even in the history of the church. It's a modern construct. However, to me, that's good news. And you can say, what? Why? Because the Lord understands real life. He understands the reality of our real lives. The Lord knows. The psalmist understood, and the psalmist understood this all too well also, didn't he? For he said the Lord was with him even as he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. It wasn't all neat and tidy. He was walking through a valley, a dark valley, tormented by death. Suffering, however, is a part of Scripture. This is the case because suffering is a widespread reality through real life. If we were to look carefully at the Bible, uncertainty and struggle with life is far more of a theme than comfort and ease and, and everything is neat and tidy. That's, that's not usually what we find in the Bible, is it? Let, let's just go back to our book that we studied just for the last few weeks in Mark. Do you remember the struggle of the disciples? Jesus told them what was going to happen to him over and over. He is going to be betrayed. He's going to be killed. He's going to be buried in a tomb, and then he'll rise again. And they heard this over and over and over again, and all of these things came true, and yet they still were terrified, even after the resurrection. They were scared. And life wasn't necessarily better for them. It actually got a lot worse for them if we look back through church history. Life got harder for them. You see, God did not choose to hide our cries or to always wipe away our tears. 
He doesn't always wipe out suffering. Instead, he dedicates an entire book to lament, and he dedicates a number of psalms to the plight of the hurting. Or can we say to the plight of real life? To our lives that aren't always neat and tidy. Lamentations then weeps with a displaced people. A displaced people who have lost their city, their jobs, their families, their way of life. It's been destroyed and leveled to the ground. Understanding this book honors the suffering that took place by those so many years ago. It also allows us to have the necessary tools when suffering and hurt and pain comes into our lives to know how and what it looks like to weep. And maybe not even for our own lives, but how to weep with those who are weeping. To mourn with the displaced, with the outcast, with the alien, with the suffering. You see, because Lamentations is their song. Therefore, it's our song. I found in this book the fact that uh, life in God's world, as I've said, is not always neat and packaged. This book is, is, is like walking into someone's house who didn't know you were coming. Right? We had people over to our house this weekend, and we, we picked up, we took out the trash, we wiped down the counters, made sure the toys were off the floor, made sure it looked like nobody lives there. Right? Which I'm all, I'm a big fan of that, as a matter of fact. I like things neat and tidy. However, this book is not like that. This book is like they walked into our house and the bed was unmade. The dishes were still in the sink. The toys were strewn all over the floor. It's real life. We're walking in the living room of the hurt and the pain of God's people. The second reason we look at Lamentations is because this is God's work. We see the heavy hand of God's discipline in this book. We see the heavy hand of God's discipline upon the people that He loves. And this is the God that we love. The God that extended this discipline is the God that we serve, that we dedicate our lives to. This is the God that loves us also. It is this God who caused great tragedy to come upon those whom He loves. And what's more, He journals it. These people are hurting and crying. And He has Jeremiah write it down. Now I don't know about you, but when I'm hurting and when I'm crying and when I'm weeping, the last thing I want somebody to do is to document me while I hurt and while I cry. And here the Lord is doing just that. Why? Because God's at work and this is real life. Will we ever feel like Jeremiah did as he looked over Jerusalem? Will we ever feel like Jeremiah did as he wrote Lamentations? Perhaps the biggest question is, is am I insulated from this discipline? Am I insulated from God's discipline? Am I insulated from lament? Or maybe am I insulated from what causes their lament 
in our modern Christian veneer of perfection, we have distanced ourselves from this very topic, haven't we? We've distanced ourselves so far from lament that we're actually scared of it and causes guys like me to be cautious as we tread through the book of Lamentations because we're not quite sure how people are going to react. Because we're scared of it. We don't like it. We don't want it. We don't read this book of the Bible when we go through our yearly annual reading plan. We tend to skip over like numbers and Lamentations. Why is this book even here? We have to wrestle with these questions for ourselves, don't we? And the third reason to study Lamentations is because lament is an experience that God is using to mold and shape people to fulfill His covenant promises. I truly do want us to wrestle with some of the fundamentals of Lamentations before we get into the the, the thick of the passages for today and in the weeks to come. I do this because, as I've said, most of us are so unaware of this book, we have no idea where it comes from or how it got here or what its importance is in the canon of Scripture or in our lives. So so therefore, just hang in with me for a few more minutes before we get into the verses that we read. Can you? If we were to look at the Old Testament, and this is a very broad, one-section way to outline the Old Testament... And there are a number of ways to outline the Old Testament. This just is one extremely broad way, okay? That's just my disclaimer for what this broad outline is. We can look at it in, in two different ways. We can look at the Old Testament as in bondage at the hands of the Egyptians, right? And then bondage at the hands of Assyria and Babylon. So, ex- so Egypt, exile, right? Bondage in both spots. In the first two chapters of the Bible, obviously Genesis and Exodus, the people of God were created, they rebelled, we had the flood, and then God started all over again with Noah and his family. He then makes a covenant with Abraham, promising him land and offspring and blessing. The promise was almost overwhelming. What was not realized that this covenant would would not be manifest until 430 years later, I should say, after 430 years of bondage in Egypt. You see, because this was the plan of the Lord. It was God's plan that the people of God would be in Egypt for 400 years. Just so you know, and I'm not a mathematician, but I think that's longer than the United States of America has been around. Just saying. It's a long time. So it was God's plan that these people suffered under this bondage. This is the reality for the Israelites. They knew nothing other than bondage for many, many years and generations. But the covenant had two sides, essentially. God's great completion and also suffering. Sometimes the completion of God's will comes with suffering, comes alongside suffering, covenant often brings hardship and causes us to weep. Weeping is not always out of God's will. How do we know that? See Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus when he saw his dear friend in a grave. Jesus wept. See Jesus in the garden on the eve of his crucifixion 
when Jesus was weeping to the point and sweating to the point where it became blood. See Jesus on the cross in suffering and agony. Where have you gone, Lord? Why have you forsaken me? He cried out in a loud voice. Weeping is not always outside of God's plan. And the people of Israel wept in Egypt. God did keep His promise, for He delivered them out of Egypt and gave them this land, didn't He? He blessed them and He caused them to multiply and they exited from Egypt with the leadership of Moses. And then, through the leadership of Joshua, they took the land. And yet again, after the people had been stiff-necked and stubborn, the Lord led them into captivity in Assyria and Babylon in various times. But then he still was faithful to his people even as they wept in those times. And Nehemiah led them out to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem, to rebuild the city, to rebuild Jerusalem. This then leads us to Lamentations. The tone of this book, to say nothing about the title, <laughs> strikes a dissonant chord with us, doesn't it? It's fingernails on the chalkboard. It's fingernails on the chalkboard of the modern, western, postmodern way of thinking, especially of Christianity, which tells us we should never weep. We should always be looking for ways to be healthier and wealthier, to, to prosper, to be comfortable, to live better, to live longer. To be better. Perhaps guys like me are at fault for that. Perhaps we couple things together and don't tend to land and linger long enough in the places where we're supposed to. For example, rebellion and then covenant. We link those two things together, right? We link rebellion and, and the and the first gospel together. And we don't linger very long on the rebellion aspect of it. We quickly go to the gospel message. And I get why we do that. And I'm guilty. Or perhaps we even say that, that we take it further too and we say Egypt, then promised land. The, the, the suffering of Egypt and then God does these miracles to, to wipe out Pharaoh and his army and swallows them in a sea and brings them into promise. From, from hardship and pain to promise. Or from cross to resurrection. From death to heaven. We do this almost in our subconscious. For we have been conditioned so long to just go immediately to the comfort. Immediately to, to the ease. But both parts of those statements are true. Death is every bit as real as heaven. The cross is every bit as real as resurrection. The rebellion is every bit as true as the promise. Looking at it this way, in the way that it's normally done, may suggest a couple things for us. It may suggest to us that we will see both in our lifetimes. That we may suffer, but it, it will get better. Why did I bring up Israel in Egypt for 400 years. Because the story of God's people often is not that it gets a whole lot better. Generation after generation 
after generation, new bondage. Hard slavery bondage. It didn't get better. There was a promise that they held on to, but they wept for generations. But it's the far reach of Western prosperity preachers and and modern contemporary Christianity that drives us to a perpetual distance from the reality of the Bible. One commentator puts it this way, and I want to read this quote. The far reach of Western prosperity preachers and their perpetual distance from the New Testament teaching should jolt the church to where we see that suffering is a part of the life of the believer. Therefore, so is lament. My prayer for us then over the next few weeks is that we find a full expression of lament and a hunger for healing that's only provided by the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So then with the short time that I do have left remaining this morning, I want us to look at these first few verses of, of Lamentations. A book that the, the author is not exactly known, but it's, but it's widely considered that Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations because he had looked over Jerusalem and seen its fall. But chapter 1 develops a theme of holy lament. In this holy lament, we must understand a few things. We must understand the state of the suffering We must understand what caused the suffering, and we must understand God's response to these things. And so let's just jump into verse 1 here if we can, after we've been given perhaps a lengthy bit of context and history behind Lamentations. But do you read the very first line of Lamentations? If you were to write a book, would you write it that way? Probably not. How lovely sits the city that was once full of people. It's a strong right hook that lands squarely on our jaw as we read that line. This city was once the center of God's people. It was the envy of the world. It was a bustling city of commerce, of spirituality. It was the city on the hill, wasn't it? This was the place where David, King David, ruled with dignity and power and might. This was the city where Solomon was obtain wealth and wisdom beyond measure. It's the city where Solomon built the greatest temple ever known for the worship of the Lord God Almighty. This was Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem. This was the place where the Queen of Sheba once visited. And now, verse 1 rears back with the right hook and says how lonely she is. It reminds me of the great things that we know that do not last forever. I was looking at photos for some reason some time ago on something on the intrawebs, right? Where there was a photo stream of former Olympic venues. Once venues that were, were full of, of screaming fans over track and field events or soccer games or whatever it may be. And they, these photos looked back on these cities that built these monstrous stadiums and now the stands that once held people were crumbling and weeds and trees were growing through where seats were and and weeds and and trees were growing through the athletic fields where soccer was played on where the javelin was thrown things don't last forever we know that empires were once strong they too have experienced the neglect of power and weather 
once strong leaders, institutions, churches even that were once beacons of hope and power are no more. This city, Jerusalem, is now in ruins and is alone. Nothing lasts forever. This is the state of the suffering of Jerusalem. This is the state of why lamentations exist. Jerusalem, the once great city, the city that John tells us in Revelation will come down again, right? We know this story is now in the state of loneliness and ruin. This city is Jeremiah's reality. And the second coming is so many years away. There is nothing like that the second coming in Lamentations 1. All Lamentations 1 knows is the city is in ruin. And it's lonely. And it's hurting. This is the state of Jerusalem. Desperation and despair. How did they get there? In the book of Jeremiah, we're told on a number of occasions that, that the fall of Jerusalem was self-inflicted, right? Jeremiah was a prophet going to the people of God to, to prophesy them to them about God's impending judgment for their sin, for their idolatry, so on and so forth. They have a rap sheet, a long list on a rap sheet. But they did not listen, did they? But the mere fact that Jeremiah was prophesying to them was the fact that God cared and loved them. The fact that Jeremiah's existence existed was to point to the fact that God does not want them to suffer. But even after all of the warnings, they did not listen. And we must acknowledge that we are not much better than them. Obedience is not easy. We have a difficult time heeding the instruction of the Lord in our own right. Too often we do not take seriously the instructions of the Lord. Perhaps even there's a bit of resentment that the Lord gives us instructions. We resent the fact that He tells us that we have to live this way. Or maybe even we wonder why the King of the universe would have the nerve to expect us to live in such a way or to follow them. So I wonder, is the, is the price of obedience a greater cost than the price of discipline? Certainly the people of Jerusalem discovered the answer to that question. As we think of this reality, we must understand it through the lens of the cross. But in order to understand the reality through the cross, we must be careful to not too quickly simply lump in the promises of the Lord that He says He'll never leave us or forsake us. We must be careful to understand that in our justification, in the act of our justification, we are declared innocent of all charges, but God does not immediately remove the temporal consequences of our sin, does He? So Jesus, when He died and rose again, He accomplished our justification, meaning our eternal consequences no longer exist. We don't have to fear judgment because Jesus hung on a tree for our judgment. He paid our debt. We are, we are innocent of those charges. However, there are still temporal consequences, things day in and day out that our sin leads to. We know this even because of what Jesus had done for us. There are still ramifications to our sin. Somebody had to pay the debt. 
Somebody had to die. Somebody had to have nails through his arms and his feet. Somebody had to wear a crown of thorns. Somebody had to be beaten, afflicted, stricken, abandoned. Jesus faced the temporal consequences of our sin. There are still ramifications. This is the reality that we know well, isn't it? We don't get an immediate get-out-of-jail-free card because Jesus died on the cross for us. Grace is not a license to sin or, or to continue to sin. Relationships are to be worked at. They're to be restored. They're, they're, to, they're to be constantly improving and working to be bettered. Addictions are to be handled with care and, and delibera- deliberation, not casually or flippantly. Truth must be loved, not hated. Restoration must be who we are, not something that we like to talk about. You see, for the repentant, the cross of Jesus, His suffering reverses the eternal consequences of sin, but not always, as I've said, the temporal. Sin becomes all that much weightier in the light of the warnings of the prophet, doesn't it? It becomes all that much weightier when we look at the entirety of Scripture, doesn't it? And now the opening line is now under even more burden. You see, we can look at suffering as a couple different ways, can't we? It can be instructive, or it can be corrective. It can be one, it can be the other, it can be both. The question that each of us will ultimately ask in the middle of suffering, in the middle of of our hardship, in the middle of our trials, is which one is it? Which suffering in my life is it right now? Is it instructive or is it corrective? Is it both? But here's the hard thing. We may not be able to answer that question. Another commentator puts it this way. Our success in the middle of the suffering is not dependent upon knowing what is behind the veil of the Lord's will. But like Job, when suffering comes, we are not to sin. When suffering comes, we are to look to a suffering servant. And then we repent of our sin and we trust in Him who was crucified but now is alive. And so as we move forward in these passages over the next few weeks, we must trust Him with our successes and with our failures with our trials and with our joys. We must heed the word of the Lord and begin to hate the sin that ruins our lives. For sin does do just that. Sin ruins individuals. Sin ruins family. Sin ruins churches, cities, states, countries, empires, churches, institutions. And Lamentations is teaching us to hate that kind of sin. To hate any kind of sin. But then the Lord understands that it's not always neat and tidy. The Lord understands that suffering can and does bring clarity. For as we read in 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And since all Scripture is God-breathed, perhaps we may be asking again, what is the benefit of reading Jerusalem's suffering? Perhaps we should be warned. But perhaps we also look to the cross where suffering meets our souls. 
where we lament our sin, where we understand the brevity of our sin that ruins us and others. John Calvin comments in this way, The way to peace with God is sincerely to confess that we are justly visited by His judgment and also to lie down, as it were, confounded. And at the same time, to venture to look up to Him and to rely on His mercy with confidence. Speaking for Jerusalem, Jeremiah confessed the people's sins, didn't he? And then he asked the Lord to keep His promises to protect His people. So then what do we do with this? We too are to confess our sins. And we are to appeal to the, Lord prom- to the Lord's promises that He will never leave us or forsake us and wrestle with the tension of the already and not yet. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we give You thanks for Your Word. Lord, teach us and shape us and mold us to repent and to trust. To lament and to look. To look and to learn. To learn and to live. Holy Spirit, wash over us, we pray. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.